Brits have a reputation as Europe's boozers, and for good reason, with alcohol consumption levels, measured various ways, higher than much of the continent. That reputation is extended to our young people. Hogarthian images of nights out in Newcastle come to mind. But is that historic reputation still deserved? One in two young people who were drinking alcohol weekly back in the early 2000s, down to about one in 10 in 2014. Also this week, as part of our coverage of the 70th anniversary of the founding of the NHS, we've been running a series of articles talking about this unique institution's future. Earlier this week, I talked to two people who passionately believe that the NHS needs to be publicly financed and importantly, publicly provided. Because, and this isn't an argument I've heard before, because of the culture that that fosters in the people who work for the institution. In pretty much all of the other countries in the world that have a public sector healthcare workforce, you don't see that um, that 100% commitment or that huge pride. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. And I kicked off this week by talking to Joanna Inchley, Senior Research Fellow at the University of St Andrews and International Coordinator for the WHO's Healthy Behaviour in School-Aged Children Survey. This week, the HBSC reported on the use of alcohol in 15-year-olds throughout the region. And I caught up with Joe to find out more. Joe, I thought it was really interesting that uh, the press release for this report framed it as quite a negative one that, you know, still more than one in 10 children age 15 in Europe um, use alcohol. But if you look at the data and compare 2002 when the, the you know, the data starts, 2014 when it ends, um, the thing that struck me, especially being in the UK, was how much um, usage had dropped uh, in the UK's nation, so Scotland, England, Ireland, um, Wales. Uh, could you just take us through the data? You know, what are the trends that we're looking at here um, and what have we seen over time? Yeah, sure. So we've seen really quite dramatic changes in alcohol consumption amongst young people in the UK. Now, our work focuses specifically on 15-year-olds, um, so it's not young people across the, across the age spectrum. But what we're seeing amongst 15-year-olds who are still underage drinkers um, is this big decline from around, I guess, one in one in two young people who were drinking alcohol weekly back in the early 2000s down to about one in 10 in 2014, which was the last time we, we collected the data. Yeah, and I was going to say, the UK has always been seen as uh, a fairly high uh, consumer of alcohol. Um, uh, how does the UK now compare to the rest of the So Europe? one of the reasons we've seen the largest declines in the UK is because we were right at the top of the table back in the early 2000s. Um, but we're now, we're now relatively low. It depends on what indicator of alcohol use you look at. But for weekly drinking, which is one of the main measures we use, we're relatively low compared to southern European countries and eastern European countries, for example. But what we do find is that the UK is still relatively high for riskier drinking. So that would be drunkenness and 
early initiation into drinking, so before the age of 14. And how did you collect the data on them? What's your sort of mechanism for that? So HBSC is a self-report survey that's issued to young people in a school setting. So we have a nationally representative sample of young people in all the countries that take part. And young people um, will complete the questionnaire either on paper or online, depending which country they're in. And that data is then collated um, centrally at the International Data Bank in Bergen. Thanks. So it's self-reported. I mean, how well do you think, or you know, how accurate is that self-reporting? I think teenagers are you know, often liable to exaggerate about their alcohol consumption when um, perhaps asked by peers. But you know, for this kind of official record, do you have a sense of of how accurately that self-reporting happens? So all our the items that we use in HBSC undergo a fairly rigorous process of validation. I know self-report me- methods are often open to criticism, both in terms of social desirability and but also recall bias, and those are valid criticisms. But what we feel is really important in HBSC is that young people will have the opportunity to tell us about their lives and their experiences, their attitudes and behaviour. And over time, we've tested these items many times and they've been used in subsequent um, surveys. So we have a a consistent recording of young people's behaviour over time in all our countries. They're all comparable across countries and and rigorously tested. Mm. And presumably, even if there was some some bias, um, that would be consistent over the time period anyway, so looking at the trends wouldn't be such an issue then. Well, exactly. There's consistency in in which questions we use and in how they're administered. And it's also important to say that the survey is anonymous and administered confidentially so although it's in a classroom setting we do ask that it's administered under exam conditions so young people aren't able to look at what each other's answers are and they're very much focusing on their own experiences. Mm. Thank you. So you've already told us that um, the UK used to be way out ahead uh, for drinking and now it's kind of fallen back into to the ranks with the rest of Europe but um, how does then Europe compare to other places? It's interesting because I mean we don't collect HBSC data as standard in other in other countries apart from the US and Canada, who've always been part of, of HBSC since the outset. But um, similar surveys are done elsewhere. I think European levels of drinking are higher than anywhere else in the world. That's well established, and amongst our young people, and um, that's the case seems to be the case as well. But what's interesting is that the the patterns and declines that we've seen in the UK and other European countries are also mirrored in countries like the US and and Australia in that same time. Oh, that is interesting. Um, now, you've been doing these studies for a while. Um, obviously, the early collection here was 2002, so people who were 15 then are kind of in their 30s now. So um, do we know how the levels of drinking and the patterns of drinking that you see um, in uh, young people at that time then sort of map onto to drinking patterns in the older population as well? The evidence would suggest that young people who are drinking by the age of 15 or drinking to excess at the age of 15 are likely to go on to be drinking as adults and have more alcohol-related 
problems as adults. Now, we don't track our own young people through into adulthood, so we can't make those connections within our own samples. But the evidence is pretty consistent around that, that um, the earlier that you start to drink and the more excessively you drink, the more likely you are to have alcohol-related problems later in life. And we know in terms of sort of global burden of disease that alcohol is a major contributor. I think that's why, although we've seen some really positive declines in recent years, the the levels of drinking are still of concern because, as you say, alcohol is one of the leading risk factors for many chronic diseases, um, cardiovascular diseases, cancers, mental health problems today. It's a really important issue. And the fact that we still have one in 10 young people across Europe uh, drinking alcohol on a regular basis is still a cause for concern and a need for action. Mm. And as you say, it's still a cause for concern, but I think this is a good news story about the the, the decline. Um, obviously, there have been various public health campaigns um, and things going on uh, that might or that attempt to influence our drinking behaviour. Um, not least the things like the minimum unit pricing, which uh, obviously doesn't apply to this um, this study because uh, that didn't come in until um, after the, the sort of cutoff for your data collection. But I was just wondering, do you have any idea about, you know, what's fueling this? Do we, we know if there's been any sort of particularly useful public health campaign? I think it's one of the biggest questions that people are asking now is what are the drivers behind this uh, dramatic cultural shift in behaviour? And there's a number of different um, theories that have been proposed, I guess. I don't think we have clear evidence of of, um, exactly what's causing it. And it's not going to be one factor. There's going to be many contributors to this change. And some of the um, possible things that might be contributing to these improvements are action that's been taken at, at legislative or policy level to um, enforce age limits or uh, restrict drink promotions, for example. There's been increases in the price of alcohol, and that's likely to, there's good evidence that that has an impact on, on alcohol consumption. And I think for young people particularly, there's also some interesting work around um, alcohol social norms and parental behaviours. So there's some suggestion of more restrictive parenting practices in recent years, um, less parental provision of alcohol within the home, greater restrictions within the home, less modelling and and improvements. And what we've seen generally within our our work and other similar studies is that there's been improvements in communication between young people and their parents, which is really positive and has a protective effect on not just alcohol use, but other risk factors as well. That was Joanna Inchley, Senior Research Fellow at the University of St Andrews, talking about the new report from the Health Behaviour in School-Aged Children survey. You can find that on hbsc.org. Now, people who work for the NHS have pride in their organisation, but so do many other healthcare staff working for other institutions all around the world. But Nina Modi, Professor of Neonatal Medicine, and Jonathan Clark, Clinical Research Fellow, both at Imperial College London, think that it's to do with the public nature of the organisation, and they worry that increasing privatisation in the NHS in England is going to undermine that culture and potentially affect the workforce and outcomes. 
so we've been very, very explicit about what we me- we meant by a but by publicly provided workforces, predominantly um, employed as public sector employees, employed by the state. Um, and further, we made the point that one of the hallmarks of the NHS is that this public sector workforce was loyal and very proud to be public sector employees. And that brings one of the important international points that I would like to make, which is that in pretty much all of the other countries in the world that have a public sector healthcare workforce, you don't see that um, that 100% commitment or that huge pride. What you see is a public sector workforce that says, well, I'm very happy to work for the public sector, either because, one, I'm, I have to do it, I'm obliged to do it, or two, because... I'm giving my bit back to my country, um, or because, well, there isn't another job that I can get. But you don't see this, this fantastic um, commitment and pride together that, that, is the whole, that has been the hallmark of the NHS. And I think it would be worth teasing out why the UK has differed from other countries that do also have a public sector, uh, public healthcare sector. Why there's the, why, why there's this difference? Hmm. I mean, I, I would be really fascinated to hear about that because I imagine lots of our listeners who are abroad are very proud of of being doctors and and you know might feel like they echo a sense of of what you're talking about there um, with NHS employees. So, what is it do you think um, that is unique about the NHS? Is you know, is it a, a loyalty to, to the institution as well as the kind of the profession of, of medicine? It's because it's, because it's been, it, 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 it's had a monopoly. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's taken pride in its outcomes. Yes, and, and, and as someone working in the NHS with that monopoly, the, the ability to see the alternatives outside of working for the NHS is, is relatively hard to identify them and, and therefore continuing to work for this collective publicly provided entity remains the most attractive option rather than taking a chance on an uncertain private option um, and you see the private options have all involved money exactly they're, 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 they, ha- they don't involve in other countries around the world the other options involve money they don't involve kudos so for example in, in the in the UK you know you could say well you know they're working for the they're, they're working as academic clinicians there's kudos in being in academia actually that's absolutely not the case the the other option has been money driven and of course we've been spared that in the UK there haven't been this distraction of being attracted to money because doctors on the whole have been paid a pretty decent salary and they they've had the security of having a pretty decent to look forward to. So that has taken away a huge distraction in pretty much every other country around the world, which is on the one hand, if you have money, you want more of it. And if you don't have money, you want enough of it. That distraction has been completely eliminated from the UK, which is one of the reasons why I think the, this, this, this model of socialised medicine has been so successful. Hmm. Do you think that's the case across the entire workforce? Um doctors and nurses and technicians and, and whoever else works for the NHS? Or are you talking from a particularly a medic point of view there? 
Well, I think everyone who, every profession that works in the in the NHS has taken pride in it. But it's certainly true that the workforces within within the health service have not all been treated equally. So for a long time, there's been a, a, a festering feeling that, for example, our nurses have not been sufficiently rewarded. And of course, that's all come to a head recently in the way in which, which their bursaries have been affected adversely. Um, and their pay, their pay has not risen, as many of us would think it, it should have risen. Jonathan, I don't know what your, your perspectives are there. Well, I, I think that there's there's a lot to be said for those professions within healthcare whereby you can't practice that outside of the NHS straightforwardly. Mm. So looking at the, the example of doctors and nurses, where it's it's relatively difficult in the UK to practice as a doctor and nurse outside of the NHS in comparison to, for example, working as a technician in a laboratory within the NHS or working as someone who looks after the maintenance side of things within a hospital. There are, are equivalents outside of the NHS, and potentially the... Uh, the porosity of that employment market is different to that of those who can only practice in that mode in healthcare. So, for, for example, cleaners and maintenance staff are able to work in other disciplines and practice their work across other public and private sector services outside of healthcare. Whereas if you're a nurse or if you're a doctor, you are working as a doctor or nurse. And frankly, the major decision is not whether you leave medicine to have employment elsewhere, it's whether you leave the NHS to practice clinically in another country. Hmm. Um, I mean, that that seems like it's a it's a single view of um, you know doctors or, or whoever else in the NHS. And but within the NHS, if we don't look at it as a single monolith, but think about it in terms of areas mm. and things, you know, there is a big problem in recruiting um, people up into, I don't know, rural Scotland, for example. Um, and, I mean, previously there's been problems with uh, recruiting GPs, for example, so choosing which profession and, and, and where to go. And in those cases, money has been used as a, as a mechanism to, to try and solve that. Um, does that not undermine a little bit of... Uh, you know, the idea that this isn't about cash, it's all about a, a kind of central belief in the in the work of the NHS? I don't think so, because those mechanisms have been rather crude and and they haven't worked. Um, and I think what, what one of the, the, the fact that the NHS... Let's, let's leave aside the years since 2012, where the NHS is, has, has in, in England, has effectively been dismantled. Um, but let's go prior to 2012. The, of course, there have been problems. There are all the problems in every country around the world when it comes to recruiting, as you, uh, in the example that you gave to, to remote and rural sites. But money that has never been shown to solve those problems. And, and money, uh, um, certainly in the way in which it's been used to try and um, rebalance the representation of various specialties have been in Australia. So I, I don't think it, I don't, I don't think the example that you gave undermines the point. I think in fact, um, that example strengthens the point that, that I've been making, which is that 
the fact that doctors have been in the NHS have been on a consistent pay scale has allowed them, has given them the freedom to follow their muse, to actually go into the specialty that excites them most, that interests them most. Some people want a quiet life, some people want a dangerous life, some people want an exciting life where they're up all hours. The NHS has actually been very, very accommodating of all of these different perspectives because money hasn't come into it. You know that whatever you do, you're going to be paid pretty much the same thing. But it's a strength, not a weakness. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I mean, in that last answer, you put aside what's happened um, since 2012. But I think it is worth talking about that. We've talked about you know, different specialties or perhaps different uh, jobs within the NHS. But I wonder, do you feel like there's a longitudinal difference? Um, Nina, you're a professor now. You've been practicing for some time um, and you grew up in an NHS that worked very differently, that the kind of those internal market mechanisms um, weren't in place. Uh, but, you know, for, for new trainees coming through now, the proposition is quite different, and um, that might change their relationship to the NHS. Yes, and, and herein lies the huge threat to equitable health care in the UK. Because the trainees coming in now have experienced a certain set of circumstances, a certain way of working, um, and they haven't experienced the much more cohesive health service, which was the one that, that I grew up in. And, and, and given that we're speaking, or you, you pointed out that we're speaking just as much to an international audience as to a, as to a UK-based audience, I think it's worth emphasizing that there is no NHS in England. What we have in England today is NHS England, which is a commissioning board, and a series of providers, and increasingly those providers are for-profit private sector providers. So if one were to say to the Secretary of State for Health, for example, what is the NHS in England? The only honest answer there could be is there is no NHS in England. It vanished with the 2012 Health and Social Care Act. So... In previous podcasts and in various articles and things in the BMJ, we've talked about um, what that internal market has done to fracture care because of, you know, perverse money incentives within it. Um, do you think, could you sort of go through what some of the, the kind of perverse workforce uh, and morale kind of uh, incentives are going on there? Yes. So I, I think in, in terms of workforce incentives um what one of the things is 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 simply the the fragmentation fragmentation of clinical services leading to a a more confusing landscape of clinical practice in that you're you're unsure which service to refer to whether that's in primary care or secondary care and secondly even within that service there are private sector components nhs components sometimes they don't join up and the consequence of that is that the the relative what ought to be relatively straightforward practice of medicine actually becomes more of an administrative exercise mm. than a clinical exercise and it's it's often the case speaking to to junior doctors and as a and, and as a, an fy1 just a few years ago the majority of your work is is not clinical it's it's purely trying to negotiate the increasingly convoluted bureaucratic frameworks of care delivery and, that, and that's something where increasingly fragmented care through private sector involvement 
poses an even greater problem and has potential significant ramifications for workforce satisfaction. Hmm. And this, of course, is, is something that we've, we've known would happen. Given, given the changes that have been imposed upon the NHS and health services in the UK in recent years, the, it's been quite obvious from the example in other countries that we would end up inevitably going down this route with ever more decreasing morale, with ever, more, ever increasing, as Johnson beautifully put it, much more fragmentation, much more administration, much more bureaucracy, and much less devotion of efforts of doctors and nurses to actual frontline medical care. This is exactly what you see in, uh, in countries else around the world. But the UK was spared this. And suddenly, it's being, we, we, we you know, uh, uh, you can cut this bit, Duncan, if you wish, but as with Brexit, we seem to be inflicting wound upon wound upon wound upon ourselves. Absolutely. I, I, th- I think one, one of the significant consequences in, in, in this sort of day-to-day practice of, of hospital medicine with a private sector component is with the fragmentation of organization is also the fragmentation of accountability in, in that when you have a single public provider, i.e. a single hospital providing all of those services and something goes wrong or something is in, inadequately performed, as inevitably happens throughout all health systems, the chain of accountability is restricted to within one organization rather than being spread spread across organizations mm. that can potentially seek to play one off against another and uh, and because the 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 pure attribution of accountability in in many of these in many clinical incidents or, or moments of, of imperfect care can't be put down to a single uh, a single part of the, of the chain of care delivery it it means that that process of making things better and trying to improve the quality of care is far harder to do. It's infinitely more difficult. I couldn't agree more. And the buck tends to get passed and passed and passed again. Don't forget, too, that one of the tragedies of what has happened is that this was codified into law with the infamous 2012 Health and Social Care Act because one of its provisions was to remove the the supreme um, responsibility of the Secretary of State for Health. So that, so that um, the accountability through the Secretary of State to Parliament for providing and procuring and ensuring the availability of healthcare services to every UK citizen has been lost. And we're seeing this, certainly, uh, Johnson, you seem to be seeing this in your practice, I'm certainly seeing it in mine, and I'm hearing, hearing this from colleagues too, both from their personal experiences and from their experiences as, as professionals that there is very, very little accountability and responsibility in the system now. Mm-hmm. Now, The buck is not stopping anywhere. It's simply being passed from pillar to post. Yeah, absolutely. past the parcel. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the music's not stopping. Um, as you pointed out earlier, NHS in England is the situation that that you're you're talking about and describing here. Uh, in Scotland, there hasn't been that um, marketization. There isn't the internal market and and that internal competition um, that's kind of fueling some of the things you're talking about. But having talked to um, people working in in the NHS up in Scotland, you know these some of these things around the difficulty of the bureaucracy involved um, 
in medicine and the fact that it's increasingly administrative, um, that's, that's certainly the case there as well. Um, and, you know, a certain amount of, of uh, trying to work out where the accountability lies. So public provision of that, having a public workforce, isn't a kind of universal panacea, is it? It's not a universal panacea, no, uh, the NHS was never perfect, but it was, it's like democracy. It's jolly well the best that there is. Mm. So we should have been, as a nation, we should have been putting our efforts into actually improving that really very magnificent model of the National Health Service. It was not perfect. Mm-hmm. And um, I would certainly not like to be interpreted as someone who's saying we should go back to the good old days. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that we should be looking, should be holding fast to those principles of the NHS, equitable, publicly um, funded, free at the point of need, um, but we should be looking to move the NHS into the 21st century and we should deal with some of these problems that you've alluded to, which still exist, for example, in, in Scotland. They are there, but we shouldn't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, which is what we've done. Mm. You talked about a pre-2012, so that's when um, there was new legislation which further um, introduced market mechanisms uh, with the uh, any qualified provider um into into the English NHS. Uh, do you think the balance pre-2012 was particularly better? Was there something about that, that mix of, I don't know, some market mechanisms um, that you think does work within this and, and doesn't lead to the, the workforce issues? No, no, would... the mistake that was made was that the, the internal market... Um, There's a health select committee that reported in 1990 that uh, absolutely um, pointed the fact that the internal market in healthcare was a failure. But that conclusion was never acted on. And successive governments of both colours failed to actually abolish the internal market. And then, of course, in 2012, we had this incredibly destructive opening up, as you say, with the unqualified provider, opening up of... Uh, an introduction of market mechanisms that introduced private health care and for-profit health care providers into the health care system, absolutely been the, you know, the, the final death knell, virtually. So we, we failed as a nation to learn from mistakes. And I think both sides of the political spectrum and both sides of the professional spectrum have got a have got some blame to take in this because the medical professions, I think, failed by not not saying, hang on, we don't just want more of the same, but we want to make our NHS even better and not being sufficiently vocal and clear and articulate in their thinking around that. And of course, the, the political professions failed in putting forward legislation that made matters even worse. Mm-hmm. I- I, I think I, I completely agree with with what you're saying there, Nina. That that w- one of the areas in a, in a political sense that I find particularly troubling is is the the paucity of debate about the potential options for care delivery within the NHS. There, there mm. seems there seems to be a single line um, from particularly from the Labour Party that uh, the NHS must remain free at the point of care delivery and must be structured in a way that is very close to the initial founding principles of the National Health Service. And, and while 
generally speaking, I, I agree with that. I find that that, that that single line, a relatively narrow debate, means that the whole political debate in regards to how we can move forward in the 21st century with care delivery in this wonderful care system that we have is stifled and is, and is actually very weak with, with, uh, with comparison to other modes of political debate that are going on at the moment. It is. It's very, it becomes very polarised. And when you have polarised debate, it, I agree with you, it completely stifles going forward. So if we were to, in, if, if you granted a little bit of leeway, just let's think about what an, an NHS for the 21st century might look like. And as, a, as an academic clinician, I would say, let's build on some, some scientific principles. So we know, first of all, that the primary determinant of health is not the healthcare system. The healthcare system is important, but it's not the primary determinant. The primary, primary determinants of health are those wider um, environmental and societal factors that um, together can be, uh, can be encapsulated in the phrase good preventive health, but it's broader than preventive health in the conventional sense. And as a paediatrician, I would say it's also been mindful of the fact that health trajectories are established very early on in life. So we're talking about the wider determinants and the early life determinants of health. And those are really the cardinal determinants of health. And then you have the icing on the cake, which is the healthcare system, which comes in when you've broken a bone or you've got an illness, you know, or you've got a condition that needs to be treated. So a healthcare system for the 21st century, an NHS for the 21st century, would retain those great noble principles and I use the word noble very, very advisedly because they are noble, noble principles of equity, um, of access and delivery of health care. But they would also incorporate what we've learned from science, which is that the primary determinants of health involve good societal conditions, good environmental conditions, and a good early start to life. And that's the way I would like to see the debate about the future of healthcare services going. That was Nina Modi and Jonathan Clark from Imperial College London. That's all for this podcast. Next time, I'm going to be talking to Vinay Prasad, oncologist in Portland, who you'll have heard on the podcast before. He's written a new article on bmj.com, which argues that what's defined as a disease in a clinical trial setting may be so broad that those outcomes are becoming much less meaningful and much more difficult for clinicians to interpret. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on that. That's all for this podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.